Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace. I'm Carrie Lee, Chair of the Department of National Security and Strategy and Director of the Civil Military Relations Center here at the U.S. Army War College. I'm your guest host for a new series this fall that focuses on today's debates and discussions in civil military relations. Typically, when we think about civilian control of the military, we focus on the executive branch. We think about military advice to the president, the role of the joint staff working with the civilians in the office of the Secretary of Defense, and the chain of command. But there is another co-equal body that too often gets ignored, the United States Congress. The Constitution, in fact, gives broad powers to Congress, the power to declare war, to raise armies and maintain a navy, the power of the purse, and responsibilities for oversight. Despite its many powers, there are many who have accused Congress of abdicating its oversight role, though. Congress hasn't declared war since 1941, and oversight hearings can often seem like an exercise in deference to uniformed members of the military. Congress rarely questions or attempts to rein in the president on uses of force, and almost never forces the Defense Department to make hard budget choices or pick winners and losers, leading many to declare that we are in the age of the imperial presidency. Yet over the last couple of years, Congress has perhaps begun to assert itself more forcefully and been more in the news in regards to civil military relations. Just in the last two years, they have repealed the 2001 authorization for the use of military force, pushed the military to ex address its sexual assault crisis, placed a blanket hold on military promotions over policy disagreements, and engaged in significant debate over curriculum in professional military education, to the point where many are now accusing them of actively politicizing the military. What is the role of Congress in civil military relations? What are their roles and responsibilities? What constitutes good oversight? And what crosses the boundary into politicization? Here to help us think through these issues is Catherine Kuzminski. Ms. Kuzminski is the Deputy Director of Studies and the Director of the Military Veterans and Society Program at the Center for a New American Security. Her research specializations include Department of Defense Institutional and Organizational Design and Management, Military Recruitment, Retention, and Talent Management Policy, Veteran and Military Family Issues, and Civil Military Relations. Previously, she was a political scientist at the RAND Corporation researching military personnel policy. Ms. Kuzminski has testified before congressionally mandated National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service. Her research and analysis has been featured on NPR, BBC, Federal News Radio, NBC Nightly News, The Washington Post, and Politico. She's completing her PhD in Security Studies from Kansas State University, where she also earned her BS in Military History and an MA in Security Studies. Ms. Kuzminski, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So let tell us first about the Military Veterans and Society Program at the Center for New American Security. How did you end up studying the military and society? 
Well, part of it is that I'm a military spouse, and so uh, it's something that and I'm an army spouse. Uh, it's something that I've been surrounded by for the better part of the last two decades during a period of war. And so it was really interesting to me as I was seeing people make the decision whether to stay in the military or to get out that some of the best officers I knew, the types of people I would have followed anywhere, were the ones who were deciding to get out. And it was enough uh, anecdotal evidence for me to start thinking about how do I look at this from a, a data-centric perspective. Um, but writ large at CNAS, we view the human side of national security as one of the critical elements alongside the hardware, the ships, the technology, and then the strategy and, and budget uh, development. And one of the, the foundational uh, issues that we look at is how our military reflects society and also what the relationships are between those civilians and military leaders at the more, more senior echelons who are deciding on policy and strategy. So I would be remiss before we get into talking about Congress without mentioning your efforts on recruiting and retention. Um, full disclosure for our listeners, I participated in a task force that Ms. Kuzminski led, uh, thinking about the future of the all-volunteer force and where we are today and recruiting and retention issues. What were your, some of your big findings from that task force and that study? Yeah, so the uh, the all-volunteer force, uh, the modern all-volunteer force, really was conceived of back in the late 1960s in the wake of the Vietnam War. Um, and it, we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of the all-volunteer force on July 1st of this year. And what we see is that the all-volunteer force, while it did provide a lot of strengths to the American way of war, um, it really professionalized how we view our, our military, not just in the officer corps, but a across our non-commissioned officers and all the way down to uh, an E1 coming in. Um, the Some of the more societal structures have changed in these last five decades. And so there are some approaches that we're thinking about how we modernize the all-volunteer force to ensure its success uh, when it hits its 100th birthday. So thinking about the implications of uh, PCS moves on families and how that might be making decision-making processes a bit harder for those in service. Uh, the At the inception of the all-volunteer force, that wasn't necessarily an expectation. Um, it certainly wasn't an expectation that individuals would have a spouse with a career themselves. Right. And that's really changing some of the decision calculus that we see both among junior enlisted who need two incomes to survive, all the way up for to uh, general officers who are married to professionals in their own right and really having to weigh the balance of personal decisions versus versus professional. Right. This new structure of without a single breadwinner and kind of the prevalence of dual income households. That's now. right. The now the the body of uh, government that is presumably most responsive to some of these needs and most responsive to changes in society should be Congress. Congress is, you know, the, the elected representatives of society, the House of Representatives in particular, are elected every two years, and so they should be particularly sensitive to some of these changes. Um, what are the responsibilities that Congress has when it comes to dealing with the U.S. military? 
Yeah, so there's a couple of different categories. One is on the authorization front. So this is where they either enable the military services and DOD to make a change, or they declare that DOD or the military services must make a change. Those are two <laughs> different categories. Or that they cannot, right? Um, okay. And so there is a, a real outlining of, of what the services can do to modernize and what they must do. Um, Congress is also responsible for funding the military. And as we've seen over the last couple of decades, um, the issues such as the military pay, military pay raises become a really um, important issue politically for those members of Congress. Um, and then confirmations is another factor uh, that Congress, particularly the Senate, has control over when it comes to managing DOD. That's both on the uniform side and on the civilian side. Okay. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Major Michael Robinson on to talk about political polarization and American society and how that might affect civil military relations. But we know that this isn't just limited to society. This is also affecting Congress as well. Um, so how does it affect Congress's responsibilities? How does political polarization within the two legislative chambers, how is that impacting the way that they conduct these kind of oversight and authorization? Yeah, so there's been a couple of recent examples. Um, so Congress has the right to uh, hold hearings and, and have uh, representatives from both of the uh, civilian political appointees and uniform leadership account for decision-making uh, that has happened in, in the recent past. We saw, certainly saw a pushback in the Senate against the uh, countering of domestic violent extremism trainings. Mm -hmm. um, and that actually had some bipartisan or uh, it's a tricky situation. So it had uh, Republican support plus the independent Angus King from Maine um, that essentially told DOD they need to stop uh, the countering domestic violent extremism training within the military. We've certainly seen a number of House hearings that where the politics on the Republican side have called into question a number of the approaches to uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion training that the the Biden administration and the Pentagon uh, civilians have been trying to build over the last few years. Um, so we can certainly see that there are threads of that. And then, of course, in the recent history, we've also seen Senator Tuberville's holds on uniformed leadership over a, a policy disagreement with civilian policymakers, um, which is a break in civil norms. Uh, we normally see Congress holding the civilian side accountable, and that's perfectly appropriate if there are questions over policy. Um, but this has been a, a relatively new blanket hold. We did see this uh, back in earlier in the 2000s. Senator McCain placed some blanket holds over um, some Air Force modernization plans, but it was for a much shorter period of time. Um, and it, it did yield some uh, changes within the Department of the Air Force looking at the specific um, uh, issue that Senator McCain had put forward. But we don't tend to see these over very politicized issues. That was over an issue that DOD itself was in control of. I have found the entire last couple of months with this blanket hold absolutely fascinating and some to some degree terrifying. Uh, and, and so I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of background, like why is this such a problem? 
Um, you know, there are a lot of folks who would argue like it is absolutely Congress's prerogative. He is exercising the power that he has. So why are people so concerned? Why did three service secretaries come out in the Washington Post not that long ago and essentially declare that this was uh, you got to knock it off because this is this is hurting us in a big way. Like, why is this such a big deal? Well, it is within Congress's control and particularly within the Senate's control to hold up a confirmation. Uh, typically, historically, where we see that is where there's an issue of character or behavior or decision making on the part of the individual officer who's being confirmed uh, within their role. And that's a perfectly appropriate use of congressional authority and oversight on who leads our military. On the flip side, this particular case is a disagreement with civilian policy um, that is holding uniform service members hostage on their promotion paths um, and is leaving a number of key positions open. Uh, we have a number of positions in UCOM that are unfilled, unconfirmed, uh, at a time when Russia is actively at war. With UCOM being European command. That's right. Uh, <laughs> actively at war between uh, Ukraine and Russia. Uh, there are a number of positions in Indo-PACOM, which is the pacing threat that we are looking at um, through the, the national security strategy. Uh, those positions were unfilled. And for a period of time, we sat without a commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, without a chairman. And those, those positions are vital in keeping and uh, advancing our military strategy. Congress doesn't do confirmation hearings for every single person who is up for promotion, though. So the character issues that you're talking about typically have to do with very senior folks, right? A vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, for example, when there were concerns over General um, Heighton. Heighton, right. And uh, others who are up for kind of very senior levels. These are general officers who can be at the two or three star levels who are just kind of going to other positions. Um, I guess the way that I have thought about it in many ways is with this kind of with the unanimous consent for mm -hmm. Congress, they're kind of placing faith in the process of promotion as opposed to navigating any individual who is going up for the UCOM command or, you know, anything else. Is that kind of a fair characterization? That's right. Yeah. And and we did see a change. Uh, this is probably a congressional success story in changing something culturally within DOD a few years back um, in the NDAA. There was a shift in seeking out information that might be considered adverse about officers that didn't used to be looked at until they were up for an 06 promotion in the active duty. And now the DOD is required to look at that information for all individuals being considered for the grade of 04. So they're trying to capture that kind of character-related information much earlier in the process and see whether or not uh, DOD or the, the military department should even put that individual forward for promotion. Um, there was a concern among the Senate Armed Services Committee that you know, a 22-year-old intern could Google someone's name and find them on the front page of the Fayetteville News, but somehow the service had no idea because it wasn't <laughs> something that happened in uniform or while, the, while they were in service. So that's one instance where Congress pushed on DOD to actually uh, screen better, but in order to uh, 
make it easier to do these blanket promotions. They were enforcing a higher standard earlier in the service process and the DOD process. So that Congress wasn't the one having to screen for these issues. That's so interesting. Um, I want to turn to one of the other pieces of congressional uh, responsibilities, which is kind of authorizations and appropriations. Right? Mm-hmm. Congress kind of famously has this power of the purse and the ability to exert its will through funding or not funding things that it Mm -hmm. does or does not like or authorizing things that it does or does not like and whatnot. The big defense authorization bill is the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA. Talk to me about why this bill is important. Uh, We hear a lot of discussion about it, but it's not an appropriations bill. So what does it do? Yeah, so the NDAA comes out every year I believe it's one of the only annual bills that we see, which is also why we tend to see a lot of uh, ride-along amendments um, <laughs> for for anyone who is tracking the the plight of the sage grouse. They know that this environmental bill to protect a specific bird uh, kept getting tacked on to the NDAA because it's a must-pass bill every year. Um, so the NDAA provides a, a lot of levers for changing policy and culture within the services in an indirect way. So, for example. One of the uh, bigger acts, DOPMA, the Defense Officer Personnel Management Act, um, which had its genesis in the early 90s but has evolved over time, actually dictates how we manage careers of officers over that 20-year horizon. Um, And because Congress tended to get blamed for uh, situations where individuals weren't selected for promotion because it didn't necessarily follow the contours of DOTMA, uh, and the service didn't want to take on the accountability of saying, hey, you're not performing up to the standard, we're letting you go. It was easy to say, well, the law said this is what we have to do. And so uh, back in 2019, the Congress passed in the NDAA a suite of personnel management related tools that actually kind of pulled the congressional responsibility back and said, hey, services, you can let people come in uh, via lateral entry up to the grade of 06. It's up to your service secretary. You can let people opt out of a promotion board if They've taken an assignment that's good for the service, that doesn't look like everyone else's, and you're giving them an extra bit of time to make sure that they've hit all those key developmental requirements in order to promote. Um, And so it's interesting to see how Congress can use the Authorization Act to enable some cultural change within the services, should the services want to take them up on that offer. Essentially, what I'm hearing is that the NDAA as an Authorization Act is very much the list of things that the Congress... Congress says, you can do this. You absolutely cannot do this. For example, you know, you will not do countering countering violent extremism training. And oh, by the way, you absolutely will um, give. You're allowed to. You're you're allowed to do. Okay. Um, It's normally a bipartisan bill, but it seems like there was a lot of contestation and a lot more uncertainty about whether it was going to pass this year than in previous years. Can you talk to us about what some of the big points of contestation were? 
Yes. So a few of the issues, one was on the uh, ability to fund Ukraine. um, And there was a partisan fight over whether or not that was aligned with our defense priorities. Um, Another uh, amendment that didn't make its way into the bill, but that kind of held up the the process in fighting was whether or not to address uh, the Senator Tuberville's concerns about the abortion travel policy with in DOD within the text of the NDAA, or whether that needed to be a standalone bill and vote. Following an authorization bill is an appropriations bill. So Congress tells the military, you know, here's what you can do, here's what you can't do, and now here is the money to go do your things. Um, Over the last several years, uh, decades even, we've had a series of continuing resolutions. You know, we have had trouble passing budgets on time. And we here at the War College are very grateful that we uh, had our continuing resolution passed on September 30th and avoided a government shutdown. And we can, even though we continue to see Congress kind of battling over appropriations at the moment once we get a Speaker of the House. What would the consequences of a government shutdown have been for the Department of Defense? Now, we here at the War College did a lot of planning and Mm -hmm. contingency planning. What are the big implications for the DOD writ large, though, if Congress can't get a budget passed? Yeah, so one of the major concerns is that uh, those many civilians within the DOD would have to be furloughed, Uh, those who were um, not in, in critical billets, which, of course, They're all in critical billets. Um, And that can lead to some real tension, civil mill tension within an office when the civilians are not able to work on the thing that they are responsible for um, and they're going without pay. And the uniforms have to show up regardless of whether or not they're getting paid and are probably taking on the work of about six people. (laughs) A few years ago, we had during the 2017-2018 shutdown Uh, One of our faculty members um, was gifted a mug that said, world's best non-essential employee. That's right. (laughs) And so this kind of office tension between who's doing the work and who's not, who's getting paid, and everybody ended up getting paid, um, contributes to to some workplace issues. Yeah. And then there's a couple other challenges, specifically for military families. Um, So historically, Congress has, at the 11th hour, had a separate vote on military service member pay. Um, But it always waits till the last minute. And so military families have a lack of predictability about whether or not they're going to be paid, whether or not their service member is downrange. Um, And then it it really cuts back on support services for military families. It cuts down on medical care in a lot of cases. Um, And so it is a real area of instability for service members and their families. Right now, we're operating on a continuing resolution. It was passed on September 30th for 45 days, which takes us right up to Thanksgiving. Uh, So I'm looking forward to the Thanksgiving conversations around the dinner table about congressional budget politics. But uh, a lot of people say that operating on CRs is also not great for military readiness and uh, other priorities. Can you talk about why that is? Because if they're getting the money after all, right, you know, what's the problem? 
Yeah, it makes it really difficult to align your resources and your strategy, particularly when it comes to long-term investments and new starts on key technologies that the DOD and the services are reliant on. Um, under a continuing resolution, they can keep going in the direction they were going before, but they can't add these new starts. And it makes it really difficult when we're thinking about pivoting the U.S. strategy and the defense strategy to a new region with new critically enabling technologies uh, to, to move forward on that front. Yeah, modernization takes a long time, right? And so making sure that we have the funds available to, to dedicate to that seems like it should be a priority. Mm-hmm. So on other oversight capabilities, let's talk a little bit about kind of, you know, we, we spoke about the military promotions, but that's not the only thing that Congress is responsible for oversight on, obviously. Um, and one of the big pushes over the last couple of years from certain members of Congress, I'm thinking Kristen Gillibrand in the Senate and Tammy Duckworth, has been for the military to address the sexual assault crisis. What role has Congress played in this as a body versus, you know, the executive branch? And how has it used its levers of power to make the military kind of stand up and pay attention and make some structural reforms. Yeah, that's right. Um, so Senator Gillibrand started early in the 2012-2013 timeframe trying to move forward um, the proposal that the decision to prosecute military sexual assault should be removed from the chain of command. Uh, in, in her estimation, it gave too much wiggle room to commanders who have an incentive to be fully staffed um, and who may have connections to or fond uh, perceptions of individuals accused of military sexual assault. Because it was handled as a command issue, um, it could it had the potential to take the... the um, the forward momentum out of a true case, um, out out of consideration. And there was quite a bit of pushback from uniformed military leaders and even civilian leaders in the Department of Defense um, because it was so counter to the way that the command structure is set up. Um, fast forward, uh, you know, a decade, it's it's fascinating to see that our, our previous chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you know, finally added a hearing uh, at an oversight hearing where he was asked about this said, you know, maybe it's time to acknowledge that a decade ago, we thought we could improve this, we thought we could handle it within the ranks, um, but the numbers aren't showing that that is true. Um, when uh, when President Biden took, uh, took the helm, um, he immediately directed the Secretary of Defense to start a independent review commission on military sexual harassment and assault, um, which was a whirlwind study, and it's one that's worth uh, taking a look at, um, where they they interviewed commanders, they interviewed uh, sexual assault victims, um, they looked at every part of the command climate, of the structural incentives, of uh, services that were provided, and provided this report back to the Secretary of Defense, who then moved on changing the way that DOD handles sexual assault through policy. Um, but we also see um, language in the NDAA uh, last year that was addressing taking military sexual assault um, outside of the, the chain of command. 
Um, and then we see it going all the way up to the president um, because any changes to the manual on courts martial have to be delivered through an executive order. So about a month and a half ago, we saw that that President Biden uh, issued that guidance. And so a, a few things that it did was it also criminalized uh, sexual harassment uh, because what the Independent Review Commission found was that sexual harassment is often a leading indicator of a future sexual assault. And before that wasn't a crime under the UCMJ. It was, um, you know, it was a disciplinary action, but it was not a crime under the UCMJ. Oftentimes when I'm operating around here with leaders, I will hear, you know, bosses um, generally say, let's get out ahead of this Mm -hmm. so that it's not directed to us. Is it a failure of the military that Congress had to get involved in this? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, service members and uniform leaders and civilian policymakers do have the authority to make these changes internally. Um, But change is hard in a giant bureaucratic institution. And so sometimes that is the successful lever that Congress has over the way that the DOD and the military services operate. And sometimes it takes getting to that level for it to change. We saw this with Goldwater Nichols on something that was uh, in some ways less contentious, although perhaps in some ways more contentious, um, you know, making the force more joint um, was certainly a conversation that needed to happen between Congress, DOD, um, over a period of years uh, in order to actually implement that change. But it took Congress passing the act to enforce it. What do you think the prospect of congressional action around sexual harassment and sexual assault, what do you think the the prospect of that is to be successful in terms of kind of cultural change in the DOD or, you know, bringing women back into the force or making them feel more comfortable across the ranks? Yeah. um, One of the overlooked uh, authorities that that Congress has is reporting requirements. Um, And sometimes uh, it can feel like, okay, Congress is is putting a reporting requirement to kind of kick the can down the road. But in fact, I think it actually forces the services to have to take a look at what is uh, required uh, to to change culturally. Um, Congress can also certainly provide both both legal frameworks and the funding to ensure that um, victims of sexual harassment and assault are um, are getting the resources that they need um, and uh, enforcing that DOD builds those structures. Where are some areas where Congress needs to step up? So, you know, we've talked a lot about where it's already making some actions and where Uh, a lot of its efforts have been, where is it kind of abdicating its responsibilities? Or where are some places that um, they really should be taking a look at, but just aren't? One of them is external, right, which is thinking through the, the, um, the, the broader budget environment um, where they need to step up on staying regular on on um, funding the government, all parts of government of which DOD is is a large piece of that. Um, but I think one of the bigger problems is actually internal, which is that there's very little understanding of civil military norms within Congress itself, even among staffs. Um, and when we look at civilian leadership uh, within the administra- any administration or within the Pentagon, um, 
while they don't get the regular education on civil norms that our uniform counterparts have, um, they are exposed to these military norms more frequently. And there are opportunities at senior levels to to get that kind of training. Um, I think Congress doesn't know what it doesn't know on the civil mill norms side of the House. Um, and that is certainly on display with the, the Tuberville holds. Um, so finding ways to educate themselves, whether it's uh, new member training, whether it's um, engagement with the military community, or whether it's relying on those military fellows who are interspersed throughout mm-hmm. a number of congressional offices, it's on them to learn. Um, and it's on the military side to, to be offering that education. So this leads actually really well into the next question, which is where should Congress back off? Where <laughs> where are they overstepping their bounds or sort of doing things, uh, in your opinion, kind of not in good faith uh, or kind of in accordance with their role, their actual responsibilities? Yeah, you know, certainly legislating what um, curriculum can and should be used at at uh, throughout the military um, is a kind of micromanagement on on that front. Um, And if there are challenges to the broader policies that are um, underpinning the curriculum, that's certainly something worth um, having a a hearing about um, with with the civilian leaders, not the uniform leaders. Um, I've been surprised to see the number of partisan questions that have been lobbed at our uniform leaders in a series of hearings, whether it was the posture hearings this spring, um, whether it was questions to um, uniformed uh, leaders over the budget. Um, There were a lot of partisan questions that were thrown at these senior leaders and kind of put them on the spot wasn't necessarily appropriate for them to be asked those questions and then they're they're sitting there on the spot. Now it is fair for them to throw those questions over to their civilian counterparts. It you'd say that it puts them in a really difficult position. Talk to me a little bit about why that position is so precarious. Yeah. So our uniform leaders um need to be not a political but a partisan. They're always going to be seen as a political leader uh, given their rank and authority, given the confirmation process that they hopefully are, are going through. Um, but asking partisan questions, regardless of the answer they give, they can be painted um, as a partisan tool by the other side. And we've certainly seen quite a bit of that um, in reactions to some of General Milley's comments during some hearings. Um, And the impulse of those in uniform is to protect those that are in uniform. And so it's really difficult to not answer those partisan loaded questions. Um, And so it's really incumbent on the members of Congress to follow the proper civil norms and direct those questions at civilians. Um, if the uniformed leader is sitting side by side with their civilian counterpart, which frequently they are, um, it's also worth throwing that question back to the, the member of Congress and saying, I'm sorry, that question is for my civilian counterpart. Politicization issues aside, there's also a tension between military leaders' loyalty to the executive branch, speaking mm-hmm. of service secretaries, and Congress, right? Because the civilian control of the military is actually dual control. That's Operational right. control belongs to the executive branch, while large functions of administrative control belongs to Congress. Right. How do military leaders manage that tension and speak kind of honestly and truthfully to Congress in their testimony versus, you know, making 
maintaining loyalty and making sure that they're following orders from an executive branch that might have very different conceptions of what policy should be from their congressional counterparts. Yeah, I think that is part of the real tightrope walk that these uniform leaders are stuck with, right? Um, and, and that's part of how the professional military education system is so different from anything we see on the civilian side of, of education, is thinking through how do I navigate these highly tense political debates without painting myself as a partisan on either side. Um, certainly, the, the chairman provides um, feedback directly to the, to the president. Um, on, you know, how well things are working or or not. Um, and it's uh, certainly been a challenge seeing Congress asking those types of questions on display um, in situations where it might not be appropriate for the uniform leader to respond. This about ends our time here. But if you would like to know more about the U.S. Army War College's Civil Military Relations Center and our programming, you can find us at cmrc.armywarcollege.edu. I also want to thank you, Ms. Kuzminski, for your time and insights into what is surely an interesting period in American civil-military relations. And thanks to all of you for listening in to our series on modern civil-military relations. If you liked what you heard, please take a moment and subscribe to A Better Peace so that you don't have to miss an episode, and then rate the podcast on your podcatcher of choice so that we can grow our community and continue to have conversations like this one. Until next time, from the War Room, I'm Carrie Lee. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.